Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Invite the rest of you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. We are finally back, finally back to Isaiah after a three-week break here. We've been studying this whole section, 13 to 27, over the last uh, month or so. And in these chapters, Isaiah chapter 13 all the way to chapter 27, the one true and living God is being presented to us as the sovereign Lord of history. What does that mean? Well, it means that he and he alone is moving all things to his appointed end. And that end, we've said, is the um, establishment of his eternal kingdom. As Isaiah has been proclaiming these oracles of judgment, these burdens, as they're called, all over uh, the ancient Near Eastern world as he knows it at that time, in chapters 13 to 23, what we've seen is that God holds the fate of the nations in his hand. And as, Isaiah, as Daniel, the prophet, uh, reminds us in Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, that it is God who changes the times and the epics. It is God who removes kings and establishes kings. He's the one who gives wisdom to wise men, and he is the one who gives knowledge to men of understanding. God is the one who pulls the strings of human history, ultimately. And therefore, all the things that we are tempted to put our trust in, earthly power, we saw earthly politics, earthly possessions, those things are, in the end, ultimately false hopes because the Lord is sovereign over all of them. What matters above all, we said, is that you and I are rightly related to the sovereign Lord of history, which we can only do on the basis of faith. The question is, are you a citizen of God's kingdom? Are you accounted as one of God's people. But, the, but that reality, those questions, prompted a, a number of important questions, questions that are often not clear to us. They're not, they're not straightforward in our minds. They're, under, they're not understood. Questions like, where is the kingdom of God? And who are the people of God? And so we took uh, two messages to, to lay a theological foundation to understand these important concepts as they're revealed to us um, especially in Isaiah, but also elsewhere. We looked elsewhere in Scripture. We took one message to, to ask and answer the question, where is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? We laid out, we, you'll remember, this twofold framework to answer this question. We learned that on the one hand, there's a universal scope to God's kingdom. In other words, God's reign is over everything presently, uh, heaven and earth, and it, it, you know, every created thing is in his sovereign control. So there's a universal scope to God's kingdom. But at the same time, we learn that there's always a particular focal point to God's kingdom program as it unfolds throughout human history. Uh, and, and in creation, the focal point of God's kingdom program is the Garden of Eden. And then in the Old Testament, it's the tabernacle, and later in the land of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple. On this side of the cross, we said God's kingdom program is focal. Its focal point is in the body of Christ, the church. And at the end of the age, God's kingdom program once again will zero in upon Jerusalem and the land of Israel. So God's kingdom, we said, is universal in its scope, but the worldwide scope of God's kingdom, uh, future kingdom, will have a focal point in Zion in a coming millennial reign of Messiah on earth and in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. So we said, when you encounter the kingdom of God in Scripture, the question you need to ask yourself to figure out, well, which 
perspective is the author referencing the kingdom of God, you need to ask yourself, is the author talking about the extent of God's rule here? Or, you know, which, which has always been over everything, or is he talking about uh, describing a particular expression of God's rule at a particular point in redemptive history? Most of the references to the kingdom of God in the prophets and the gospels and acts and even in some of the New Testament letters, the, the, the reference point is the narrower vantage point of God's kingdom program in its final phase, its restoration. And so in this final chapter, that encompasses both the intermediate millennial reign of Christ, which we see described for us in Revelation 19 and 20, as well as the eternal kingdom that he spells out for us in chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, John does. So we looked at what is, where is the kingdom of God, and we saw that it is, uh, you know, kind of helped us understand that a little better. But you can't discuss the where of the, God's kingdom without discussing the who of God's kingdom. And that led to a second message. We wanted to ask and answer the question, who are the people of God, as the word of God describes that concept? And we said there are four characteristics that stand out about the people of God. We said first, they're a purified and redeemed people. They're a purified and redeemed people. Both Jew and Gentile are a sinful, faithless lot. And yet God promises to purify and redeem a people for himself and save them. God's work in the person of Jesus Christ fulfills that, that obligation. We, Jesus said, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5 verse 32 says, it's not only through, it's, it's, excuse me, only through Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection that God, by his spirit, creates a holy nation that is the beneficiary of his future salvation. So God's people are a purified and redeemed people. Secondly, we say God's people are an obedient and just people. God's people who have been purified and have been bought back give evidence of that transforming work in their hearts by being obedient to the word of God and being just in their dealings with others. As Jesus said in the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, that the people of God in Christ are the good soil. They are the good soil in whom God's word is held in an honest and good heart and it's held fast and bears fruit with perseverance. Like that is the people, that is the characteristic of the people of God. They are those who hear Christ's words, Matthew 7, and act on them like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Thirdly, we said God's people are a trusting people. As you look at the word of God, God's people are a trusting people. And just as Israel and Judah were to trust in God and not the foreign nations around them for salvation, so believers are to trust that they are and will be saved by God through Christ from the day of wrath, Romans chapter 5, verse 9. We trust that God, the sovereign Lord of history, has conquered sin and death at the cross and one day we'll make right all that is wrong when he comes and establishes his eternal kingdom. Fourthly, we said God's people are a Jewish and a Gentile people. As you look at the scriptures, the people of God concept is applied to both Jew and Gentile. God's kingdom people will hail from every tribe and nation as they are swept up in the glorious wake of God's salvation and restoration of Zion. We said what God does in Jerusalem as it's described for us in the prophets, he will do throughout the whole earth. It is through the life, 
and death and resurrection of, Jew, of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, that the good news of the kingdom has gone out from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Paul can say, as he does in Romans 10, verse 12, that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. So we see that um, reality. It's not that the, the, the distinctions are obliterated, but as it relates to the saving work of God, both Jew and Gentile have equal access to God through Christ. So when God's kingdom program is completed, there will be nothing unclean. We looked at Revelation 21. There will be nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying will remain, only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the picture. So that's what we've talked about over the last two messages. We said that we were laying a theological foundation so that we could understand the text that we're going to look at this morning in 24 to 27. With all that said, though, the question remains, how do we get there? How do we get there? How does the kingdom promised culminate in the kingdom restored? And chapters 24 to 27 reveal to us what the future holds. So Isaiah 20, chapter 24 to 27, describes a future worldwide judgment that gives way to a future worldwide kingdom. And at, the, at this climactic moment in human history, the Lord's uniqueness and superiority above all earthly powers and heavenly powers is unmistakable. There is no one but God on the scene at the end. The Lord promises to purge the earth, to judge the wicked. He promises to banish death forever, and he will receive the remnant's praises. And so in many ways, 24 to 27, I think, are a fitting conclusion to the messages that we've been reading, these oracles of judgment against the nations, detailed in 13 to 23. At the end of the age, all that remains is the sovereign Lord of history, his kingdom, and his holy people. Whatever else you and I have put our trust in, that's not going to be there to save us. Now, it's worth noting, and I don't remember if I said this specifically, but it's worth noting that these oracles, these burdens against the nations were primarily given for Judah and Israel. There's no convincing evidence that Isaiah's prophetic word against Babylon or his prophetic word against Edom or Egypt, that those nations heard those prophecies, at least not when they were given. They were given for Judah and Israel, but and ultimately they are given for us. So the question is, why preach them? Why does Isaiah take the time to write them down under the Spirit's inspiration for future generations? And the answer is twofold. The answer is twofold. First, he does so to afflict the comfortable. To afflict the comfortable. One of the ongoing issues amongst God's people throughout all the ages is, is this issue of complacency. And those who take the name of God upon their lips become comfortable in their sin and in their rebellion, and they delude themselves, and they even delude people around them that, um, that God doesn't care. God doesn't care. The prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, they are covenant enforcement mediators, and what they do is paint a mural of God's pending judgment 
He, they paint a mural for God's pending judgment with their words so that those who are spiritually comfortable, those who become complacent and now are in danger of perishing, would wake up from their stupor. It is meant to jar them loose from their spiritual sleep. But these prophetic oracles not only had a, um, um, a negative effect to wake up the, those who were comfortable in their sin, but it also had a positive effect, that is to comfort the afflicted. Because in every age, there are a remnant of true believers who are striving to live sanctified lives in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. It was true in Israel, it's true today, it will be true in the future. They are just trying to live faithfully, but they're getting crushed by the weight of their circumstances. They look around them and it's just wickedness and rebellion and and lying lips and injustice and corruption. And at some point they start to ask themselves and, and say to, even perhaps in their prayers to God, how long, O Lord? And amidst the suffering and amidst the persecution and the apparent triumph of evil, they observe around them, they may even be tempted to just give up, right? If you can't beat them, join them. That's the temptation. And so these prophetic oracles remind the afflicted that God sees. They remind the afflicted that he will deal justly and he will deal righteously with the wicked. And therefore, they can take comfort that God's kingdom program is still on track and that it and they will reign victorious in the end. And so what Isaiah, I think, is doing in this section is drawing our gaze toward the future when God's kingdom program will be consummated in order to do two things, to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. That's his goal. And so that's our outline. It's a two-part outline with some kind of sub-points underneath. And uh, so we begin in chapter 24, where Isaiah is afflicting the comfortable, particularly in verse 1 down through verse 20. Isaiah is drawing our gaze to that future day to afflict the comfortable. Now, it's hard to preach this because we usually kind of go linearly, but really the text The meaning of it, its force, opens up to us as we think about its structure. And one of the things that the prophets do, and psalmists do this too, is they put things in in kind of brackets. One on one side, and then later on in the chapter, they kind of have a parallel concept here, and then another one here, and another one there. And that's what we see him doing here. This this chapter, really, its meaning and the force of it opens up to us as we understand its structure. At the beginning of chapter 24 in verses 1 to 3, and at the end, toward the end, in verses 18 to 20, this chapter begins and ends with a devastated earth. Look at verse 1. He says, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken his word. Look down at verse 18. He says at the end of verse 18, For the windows above are opened, and the foundations of the earth shake. 
Verse 19, the earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently, the earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall never to rise again. And so, again, like bookends, Isaiah reminds all who hear and read these words that the God who orders the world, the God who orders history and its final destiny will in the end, unleash a final cataclysmic judgment that spans the globe. That's the picture here. Notice there is no one nation singled out here anymore. Before, you know, it was Edom, it was uh, Babylon, it was Egypt. Here, it's just the earth. Everywhere you see in those verses we've just read, it's the earth across the earth. The earth will do this. The emphasis is on the totality of God's judgment. Sometimes, you know, you think about this, and I think you, as we kind of observe the news, because we're able to kind of watch and hear things, especially with, you know, social media and everything in real time. Sometimes the wealthy and the well-connected, they get a glancing blow when, when calamity falls, right? They have their nice homes that are well-built. They have their money to, you know, to restart. They have all these things, and so they get essentially a glancing blow, while those who are poor, those who are not well-resourced or well-looked after, they suffer greatly. But here, as we look at this text, God has spoken, and they are absolutely, everything is leveled. Do you notice that in verse 2? The, the, the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. In other words, when God's judgment drops, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your situation or station in life, you will be laid waste. God has spoken, verse 3, and it will most certainly come to pass. The earth will be devastated. And the answer, the question is, why? Why is God going to unleash such a judgment upon the earth? And that answer is given to us in the next section. Because in verses 4 to 6, and again in verses 16 to verses, uh, you know, a couple of sections of verse 18, we see a wasting, withering world. Another set of brackets kind of wrap its arms around this text and here Isaiah paints the details of a, of a world that is, that is literally withering on the vine. And it's because of man's rebellion and sin. Look at verse 4. He says, The earth mourns and withers, the world fades and withers, the exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant, Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. If you look at verse 16, the end of verse 16, it says, Woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, the treacherous deal very treacherously, terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. In other words, there's no escape. No escape. Humanity has refused to live underneath divine authority. 
That's the picture here. They've rejected God's revealed truth. They have spurned his gracious instruction. They have rebelled against his covenant promises. And now they are reaping the consequences of what they have sown. I want you to notice he mentions the uh, everlasting covenant here in verse 5. Isaiah references that. And that term is actually used throughout the Old Testament to describe not just um, one particular covenant, it, it is used to describe God's promise covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. He, he speaks of the everlasting covenant and applies it, the psalmist does in Psalm 105, to the Abrahams, God's covenant with Abraham. He also, uh, Moses applies it to the Sabbath in, in Leviticus 24 and verse 8. And uh, in 2 Samuel 23 verse 5, that term is applied to David, the covenant with David and its future messianic fulfillment in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61. The point is that humanity has at every turn, at every turn refused to live in submission to God's gracious promises. And therefore, God has no choice but to enforce the consequences of his covenant. No one will be able to rise up in that future day and say, why has God done this? So we see a devastated earth, a withering world. At the center of this section is a song silenced, contrasted with another song that rings out. In verses, at the center, we see both the justice of God and the grace of God. A song is silenced in verses 7 to 12. Notice what Isaiah writes. He says, The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh, the gaiety of tambourine ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the street concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. Verse 12, desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. Verses 7 to 12 show us that all joy in that future day disappears when God's judgment breaks loose. The city of chaos, verse 10, is really a personification of the world system that operates apart from God and his word. That world's city will be destroyed. He describes it here in verse 12 as the gate is battered to ruins. In other words, stability and security is ripped away. I I remember um, on September 11th, after watching all the events of that day unfold on the news and the reality of loss, just kind of watching that unfold during the day, um, I remember in my college dorm, the, the, the normal kind of hustle and bustle and all that just stopped like the whole day. Everyone was just sitting in silence watching the news to see what was going on. You know, and, and, and normally there had been music playing, people joking around, people running around, throwing each other into the wall, whatever we did. It was a fraternity. So. We got really good at fixing holes in walls. Because if you did it in 48 hours, you'd have to pay a fine. <laughs> but the reality of the situation is we just witnessed a profound loss. And that's the picture here. But it doesn't just grip a town 
or a state or a nation. It, it, it grips the whole earth. God's terrible swift sword will go forth. His justice will cause the earth to sit in silence. But among the shocking silence of a new song, uh, within, that, within that shocking silence, a new song it rings out, as we see that in verses 13 to 16. The battering of the gate, and there's, a, there's an intentional play on words between the end of verse 12 and verse 13, between the battering of the gate, there brings the beatings that bring out a remnant, a remnant of souls. Look at verse 13. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking or striking, really, of the olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. They raise their voices, they shout for joy, they cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. The imagery here is profound and it's easy to overlook. Um, when you strike what's left on an olive tree or glean what's left on a grapevine, you have to delicately pick out what's left over after the harvest. And, and the proper way to harvest olives is to beat the tree with a giant stick. and All the olives fall down, you pick them up. But even what's left here will be struck. And so what you have here is, is just a handful of olives being retrieved, a handful of grapes being retrieved. In other words, after God's wrath breaks forth across the earth, those who remain, those who are picked up what, after what's left over are, are, like, he, are like, he says, a few olives and a handful of grapes. In other words, a remnant, only a remnant, will survive. That's how Isaiah describes his chosen ones who pass through this judgment. And from this select remnant, a song emerges. It starts in the east, and it rises up from the west, and eventually you see it spreads throughout the ends of the earth. And what is their song? It's a song of praise. It's a song of thanksgiving. God's majesty, God's righteousness, his glory as the God of Israel will be seen. It will be proclaimed when God's justice is measured out. This is all God's grace. This is a remnant remaining, God's purifying judgment uncovering his mercy to his people. In other words, there are always pockets of hope as God's kingdom plan moves forward. And the language of chapter 24, all of chapter 24 really, in many ways echoes the language of the flood narrative in Genesis 6 to 9. Lurking in the background here is God's previous worldwide judgment where he graciously spared a believing remnant, Noah and his sons and his family. How, why do we say that? Well, if you, you look at the language, the verbiage here, eternal covenant, he speaks in verse uh, 18 of uh, windows of heaven breaking forth. He speaks of the curse. The, it speaks of the vine and that theme, that theme of the vine, Noah the vine dresser from Genesis chapter 9 and verse 20. That's all, that's all allusions to the flood narrative. You say, well, so what, Jeff? What does that matter? It matters because Isaiah is predicting a divine judgment upon man's sin in the future on the same universal worldwide scale as his judgment that destroyed nearly every living thing on the face of the earth. That's the picture. 
And just as a believing remnant was spared in Noah's day, so a believing remnant will be spared in that future day, but the rest will perish. Isaiah is afflicting the comfortable to remind them, and really us as well, because this is all future, that all will not continue as it has been in the past. And, and this is Peter's point. Peter reiterates this in 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn with me for just to keep your finger in Isaiah. But if you look at chapter 3 and verse 3, 2 Peter 3 and verse 3, Isaiah, I mean, Peter echoes Isaiah. He says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes, Peter says, their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter says judgment is coming. And just as God's word destroyed the whole earth in the past, at the flood, God's word will destroy the whole earth in the future. What's the takeaway? Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The takeaway is repent, turn back while there's still opportunity, while there's still time. Don't trade on the Lord's patience. Cling to Christ. Follow him. Live for him. And maybe, maybe you've been dancing around the edges of Christ, not really willing to bow the knee, to, to trust him, to follow him with your whole heart and mind and strength. Maybe you think, well, I'll, I'll do that when I'm older, when I grow up, young people. Maybe I'll do that when, I'm, when I retire or whatever. Until then, I'm just going to live life on my own terms. You need to hear the words of Isaiah and wake up from your spiritual stupor. The people who watched Noah build the ark said the same thing. What is rain? They all perished with no hope. Add your voice to the chorus of those who will sing glory to the righteous one. Come to him. Now, Isaiah doesn't just afflict the comfortable. He also comforts the afflicted. And that's what we want to look at in verse chapters 25 to 27. Because there were then, as he preached, just as there are today and will be in the future, those who are clinging to faith in God while they watch the world kind of swirling the drain. And they wonder, have I made a mistake? Right? Have I made a mistake in choosing to follow Christ? and live for him. They cry out like Jeremiah did in Jeremiah 12. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? And what we see in chapters 25 to 27 is, is God's manifold word of comfort to the afflicted. And we can break this down into kind of three Sections 25, 26, and 27. In chapter 25, more or less, we see the praise of God's people. Look at, look at um, back up into the last couple verses, a few verses of tw chapter 24. 
This is all future. He says, so it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. This is a phrase that we'll see again and again as we work through the text here in these last few minutes. In that day, in that day, in that day. It's deliberately indefinite. But it looks definitively to the future. In that day, divine reckoning will visit judgment upon the rulers on earth and upon the rulers in the heavens, each in his own realm. Spiritual forces of wickedness, earthly forces of wickedness, the God will deal with each of them in his own way, in, their, in the appropriate venue. God's sovereignty is complete over heaven and earth. His vengeance might be delayed, but it is going to be complete. I think, I don't know who said this, but the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And that's the picture that Isaiah paints. The Messiah will reign in glory on Mount Zion, and that glory will be on full display. And the light of that future triumph over evil, in that, tri- in that light, God's people will burst forth in praise. Verse chapter 25, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. This is them, this is the remnant praising God for his justice over the evil. God has triumphed over his enemies. And once that triumph is complete, verses 6 to 8 describe a messianic banquet where every provision is made, every need is met, every adversary is cast out, including death. Look at verse 6. He says, um, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. And how can we know that's going to happen? For the Lord has spoken. You know, in this life, to varying degrees, we all suffer lack of some kind. It's a struggle to put food on the table. It's a struggle to remain safe from everything that's out there trying to kill us, especially if you live in Australia. It's a struggle to maintain peace with one another. And that day, God will provide all those things in abundance. That's why the writer of Hebrews calls the believer's glorification a Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. No more striving, no more struggling, no more straining. Just fellowship, rest, provision, rejoicing in God and with his people. In that day, covenant promises become covenant reality. And God's people can't help, they cannot help themselves but testify that God is the one who has accomplished it. Verse 9 of verse chapter 25, it will be said, In that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited. 
that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the praise of God's people. But how do God's salvation blessings that he describes here, so richly lavished on his people who don't deserve it, how do God's salvation blessings get credited to us? The answer, of course, is by faith. It's always been by faith. We see that reiterated in chapter 26 in what is essentially a prayer of faith, a song of faith. When God judges the wicked, when he establishes his kingdom with his people in that future day, all the credit goes to him. His people have simply trusted. They have simply believed. They have simply waited expectantly that his promises would be fulfilled. Look at chapter 26 and verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Look down at verse 8. He says, Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited eagerly for you. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us since you also performed for us all our works. Verse 15, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have extended all the borders of the land. Righteousness, faith, trust, salvation, these are the characteristics, these are the possession of the citizens of this strong city that he describes here. And the point is this. It's been his point all the way through chapters 13 to 23. This is true security. This is true security in the midst of all the threats and challenges of this sin-cursed world. And this will be true security all the way through the final judgment. Trusting in the Lord. The righteous man, Habakkuk 2.4 says, shall live by what? By his faith. The Christian life from beginning to end is based upon faith. Abraham believed God and what? It was credited to him as righteousness. God's people's faith is so confident that we believe and trust that God will raise our earthly bodies from the grave. And you see him describing that in verse 18. We were pregnant. This is the people speaking. We were pregnant. We were, he describes this as if a woman in labor. We writhed in labor. We gave birth as it seemed only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. He says, man, in all of his efforts, tried and tried and tried, and the fruit of that was nothing. Like being in labor and delivering no baby. But he says, verse 19, speaking for God, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. God's saving acts are not going to be ultimately accomplished by human effort, but by heavenly power. And so the application is verse 20. Come, my people, enter into your rooms, close your doors behind you, hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. Just like the door on the ark and God's God's judgment 
God closed the door on the ark, and God's judgment passed over Noah and his family. And just as the Israelites shut the door of their homes, and the angel of the Lord passed over, sparing their firstborn in Egypt, so God's people hide themselves in Christ until his indignation runs its course. This is what we do. We live by faith. And it takes faith to take God at his word. It takes faith to seek refuge in him. But this is how God's salvation blessings are measured out on his children. As you come to chapter 27, the prayer of faith in chapter 26 looks ahead to the promise of his kingdom. In chapter 26, God's people are waiting for the Lord's gracious arrival. In chapter 27, he describes what that arrival is going to look like. Verse 1, in that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. He's using Canaanite imagery for their gods, not because he believes they're true. He's just trying to show that evil, and that's what these are all symbolic of, rebellious evil will be destroyed. That's the picture in verse 1. God will triumph over evil. He establishes his earthly kingdom with his people safe and secure and nourished. God's people will be like a vineyard well tended. Verse 2, in that day, a vineyard of wine. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Right? The, 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 Notice the contrast here. If you remember back in chapter 5 of Isaiah, Israel and Judah were called a vineyard that was fruitless. And God said, I'm taking the hedges away. I'm not going to water it. I'm going to let it just go to seed and be destroyed. But here in that day in the future, the Lord is its keeper. The Lord brings forth, is responsible for bringing forth its fruit. God's kingdom program has a focal point. It is focused on Israel, but from that focal point, his kingdom reaches to the ends of the earth. Verse 6, in that day, in, in the days to come, excuse me, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and flourish, and they will fill the whole, earth, whole world with fruit. Verse 12, in that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing streams of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel, and it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. The Lord will gather in his harvest from among the true believers, both Jew and Gentile, across the globe. We saw that in chapter 19. You see it again in chapter 21. It's here again in chapter 27. Altogether, God's people are worshiping the Lord, full participants in his glorious reign. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a picture when you stop and actually pick it all apart. And if you're living in a world that's falling apart around you with affliction and wickedness and rebellion and privation and suffering, these chapters dole out a real healthy portion of comfort. Amen? Turn with me as we kind of draw our thoughts to a close here. Turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Isaiah 
has directed our gaze to the future to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And that's exactly what the psalmist does as well. A lot of parallels between the prophets and the psalms in terms of how they kind of go about their task. He looked around him, the psalmist does, he looks around him in the world and he, he sees evil, he sees rebellion, he sees wickedness, and it tests his faith. Look at verse 2. As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Verse 7, their eyes bulge from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Verse 11, they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. He says, evil just seems to be going uh, unimpeded. These people, they just seem to be, it's just success for the wicked and the evil. And it's, you know, and he's starting to ask, is it, is it worth it to trust the Lord? Is it worth it to walk in humble submission to his word? He actually verbalizes this in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken, he says, walking with God, I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I mean, he is, he is facing a real crisis of faith. He is teetering on the edge. But then he stops, and he considers what lies ahead in the future. Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, all this reality of the prosperity of the wicked in his situation, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. It wasn't until the Lord directed his gaze, the psalmist's gaze to himself and to the future, that the psalmist comes to his senses and realizes What's going to happen to these people? What is their destiny? And then he ends by reiterating his trust and dependence on God. Verse 25, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, The nearness of my God is my good. And I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're comfortable in your sin and need the Lord's affliction to wake you up from your spiritual stupor. Maybe you're cast down and you're starting to question whether it's worth it to keep fighting the good fight of faith in Christ. Wherever you are this morning, Isaiah has a word for you. There's only one way to draw near to God and not be consumed by his holiness, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you find him to be your refuge. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. May he be your portion forever. 
Come to him today. And if he is your portion, may you continue to trust him. There is much joy that awaits us in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you always seem to address exactly the need of the moment, comforting the afflicted uh, and afflicting the comfortable. We don't ever really come to your word and, and not find promises that we can trust in hope and joy that we can find in your word. Lord, thank you for, for this study. Thank you for Isaiah's rich language and imagery and for the intricacies in which he makes his arguments in case. Or may we take these words to heart today. Uh, Lord, may you draw hearts to yourself. May you strengthen those whose hands are weak so that they can continue to press on toward the goal for the bride of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.